Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, this is Tom Balga. Welcome to Yale Emergency Medicine Podcast. Today we have two distinguished guests. Our first guest is Dr. Paul Aronson, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in Emergency Medicine at Yale. He is the author of multiple publications on febrile young infants. He is also one of the primary authors of Should We Evaluate Febrile Young Infants Step-by-Step in the Emergency Department? Pediatrics, July 2016. And we also have another distinguished guest, Dr. Mark Arbach. He's an associate professor of pediatrics, Yale New Haven Children's Hospital, director of pediatric simulation, and the director of Connecticut Emergency Medical Services for Children, EMSC. Welcome, guys. I'm really excited you're here. And today we'll talk about how to evaluate fever in a young infant. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, Paul, can you first tell us uh, how did you get interested in this topic and how did you guys come up with the idea of step-by-step? So, uh, fever in a young infant, uh, which most of us define as less than two months of age, maybe up to less than three months, there's different ways to define it, is an interesting population because on one hand, they are vulnerable. They're new parent, a young infant, they may have been home for a period of weeks. And infants who have a fever, unlike older children in this young age group, uh, have up to a 10% risk of a bacterial infection. So actually relatively uh, high risk compared to older, to, to most older children. Um, on the flip side, uh, in, uh, investigating for those infections, things like urinary tract infection, bacteremia, meningitis, is pretty invasive. We do a lot of invasive testing, very stressful for parents, um, to say the least. And so uh, the reason I became interested is that we have algorithms that have guided our management of these infants for about 25 to 30 years. Um, And for a long time, we have done the same practice, uh, at least sort of within an institution. What I realized is that there's still some gaps in our knowledge. And actually, it's very institution and provider based for this very common population that we experience. And so I think it's a very sort of interesting research area that we can improve our management. Step-by-step approach was uh, developed in in Europe uh, and Spain, actually. And uh, I became interested just because it's sort of a new algorithm that they developed and and validated um, that uh, is, uh, involves some newer testing that I think may uh, redefine how we approach these infants, at least for the time being. And so uh, my you know, publication was sort of a commentary and putting that in the context of the broader literature and, and what it, um, it indicates for the future. And I think it's kind of an exciting time for research in this area. Great. <clears throat> Thank you very much. And um, so how does this compare to the Rochester score or criteria in lab score? Yeah, so the Rochester criteria was the first um, criteria or algorithm or prediction model um, for uh, fever in the young infant in the first two months of life. And that was developed about 30 years ago in Rochester, hence the name. Uh, And it involves um, uh, testing of the urine uh, and blood, specifically a a complete blood count and looking at the uh, white blood cell count as well as the band count. And what it's meant to do is to uh, predict uh, a high risk or a low risk of a bacterial infection before you know the definitive results, i.e. The, the, the cultures. And so that's been a standard practice. What the step-by-step approach is different is that it, uh, um, the age range starts at uh, 22 days of age. So kids uh, and the infants in the first three weeks of life are automatically high risk. But the biggest difference is that it uses a couple of new tests that have not traditionally been used in this population, specifically procalcitonin and then uh, C-reactive protein, as well as the absolute uh, uh, neutrophil 
count. And so it's a little bit of a different testing module. Um, and uh, what's been, uh, what it's been um, compared to the Rochester criteria is for identifying the two infections we worry about the most, bacteremia or blood infection and meningitis or infection of the, of the spinal fluid. And it seems to be a uh, a more sensitive, i.e., it detects more of these more serious infections than the Rochester criteria does in these young infant population. I'll just briefly mention the lab scores also uses procalcitonin and the absolute neutrophil count and the C-reactive protein used in Europe a lot. That criteria, unfortunately, is not nearly as good as the step-by-step -step or the Rochester criteria in, uh, in detecting infection. It's very good at um, predicting which ones actually have it, but not um, uh, who, who don't have it. So we don't really use that one. That one has poor performance. So I would say step-by-step -step approach is probably the one I would, that may gain more favor. Used widely in Europe, probably the best one since the Rochester and the Philadelphia, which is another criteria, but definitely outperforms the lab score. Paul, okay. can we just go back to the top of that step-by-step -step approach and, and actually maybe if you could provide some historical context. I know with this podcast, linking stuff to Yale is always fun. So, uh, you know, a clinical appearance is something that most parents say when I evaluate them in the ED, my kid looks really well. Why do you need to do all these tests? And, uh, you know, we, we do have Paul McCarthy here at Yale and the Yale Observation Score. Um, but can you comment a, a little bit on, on uh, clinical appearance within step-by-step -step? because they mentioned that and, and to me that's so much of the art of medicine, um, and we attempted to quantify that with uh, the Yale observation score and recognized that was pretty challenging. Yeah, so this is a great point. In some ways, is probably the most challenging uh, component of uh, assessing the risk of a bacterial infection in a young infant. In older children, so the <coughs> Yale observation score developed by our own Paul McCarthy performs very well, i.e., you just look at a child who has a fever, an older child, and if they are well-appearing, their risk of a bacterial infection is very low. In the prior studies, maybe almost 20-something years ago, when they applied that same criteria to young infants in the first two months of life, um, five to even 10% of infants who looked well still had a bacterial infection. And so that what's challenging about this population is that a well appearance alone does not make them low risk for an infection, very different from older children. Um, and certainly if the baby is ill-appearing, they are much more likely to have an infection, not 100%, but an ill-appearing baby, we would all act similarly. But I think the challenge is that um, well appearance still has a risk. And in the step-by-step -step approach, the first criteria is if they are ill-appearing, automatically high risk. If they are well appearing, you then go on to um, age and some of the lab tests that are, uh, of, uh, that are a component of it. The one caveat being is that well appearance is a little bit provider dependent. And so mm -hmm. what I think is well appearing may be slightly different from another equally trained provider. And so I think the, the basic teaching is if they are well appearing, um, don't ever use that alone in this population. Um, and just recognize that they are a hard population to assess and all, ultimately a few different looks at the baby is probably worthwhile because well appearance is a, a, a challenging item to assess in this infant. And, and they talk in step-by-step step about the pediatric assessment triangle, and Correct. just to remind people what that is, that's the overall appearance, the breathing pattern, and the circulation. And, uh, you know, I would say that overall appearance, um, when it's well, is is uh, a lot easier if the kid's cooing, interacting, but there are circumstances where a person that's not as facile with pediatrics uh, that sees maybe a sleeping child that maybe is not um, a uh, well-appearing child to myself or another parent, but could be a well-appearing child to someone that does not have children because they're not crying or not irritable. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and I think that that's something that I think just to have a, a low threshold to reassess multiple times and just to be careful with that assessment, because I agree it's um, it's a trick even for a, a well-trained yeah. pediatric emergency medicine provider. The definition of well-appearance in a yeah. baby is a tricky I, phenomenon. And they didn't comment on this, I don't think, in the step-by-step, but one of the techniques that I've seen some of my mentors use and have started to adapt is asking the parents, uh, do you think that you know Sarah or Johnny look or are acting like they normally act now in a two or three day old, that's pretty challenging. But certainly once you get up a little bit older into a two month old, um, you know, the, the parents usually can give you their gestalt. And, and I actually use that quite heavily. Any thoughts on that, Paul, on using the parents' perspective on appearance? Yeah, so I agree. I think that, you know, the historical perspective with young infants is that they are higher risk for bacterial infection. And sort of over time, all these algorithms are aimed at um, hospitalizing less, maybe doing less invasive testing o- over time. But the same principle should apply is that these infants are high risk. And if anything seems abnormal to you, for example, the parent says that the baby is acting differently or something seems off, it is probably, I think most of us would agree that the better part of practice t- is to evaluate further as opposed to um, not acknowledging that. So I agree if a parent says their infant, something's off, something's different, use that and go with that. It's better at this age group. While that infant may not have an infection, the risk is often too high to um, not uh, pursue that. So one thing that I've done in the past is I'll ask the, the mom or dad, how has the baby been feeding? How often are they feeding? And kind of document that. Where are they at their baseline? Is that more or less than they usually are? How have they been sleeping? How have they been moving their bowels? How are they peeing? All those basic things because babies need to be doing what babies should be doing. And for me, if they're not able to do any of those, that's very concerning. Would you agree with that or... Yeah, I agree. It's it's interesting, um, you know, f- at least from the research perspective and looking at these uh, predictive models, uh, those type of factors are not usually part of them. But the reason is from a research perspective, they are a little bit hard to standardize in a, in, in a research setting. That being said, I think a lot of us would say, well, a baby has a fever for any reason, has a virus, a very benign infection, potentially. Um, they still may not feed well. However, I think we put a lot more weight into that at that age group because you're right, babies don't um, do much to show you they have an infection, a poor feeding, being very, very fussy, for example, more fussy than usual, while it could be a benign finding, can also be serious, and I agree. I think putting stock into that and using that in the component of well-appearance or not well-appearance is, um, is a good way to approach it. So I agree. I also use <coughs> those factors in determining the extent of uh, evaluation. Okay, great. And also, how about vital signs in this age group? Should we be getting uh, blood pressures as well? I don't want to do a whole dissertation on vital signs, but just in general, for to helping us with the general impression of this child initially for the first step. Uh, what do you think about vital signs? And do you think that we're doing a good job with that? Or Yeah, so you raise an important point. We actually uh, have uh, certainly discussed vital signs a lot in the emergency department setting. This age group is a challenge. Um, so the you know, heart rate that's acceptable, for example, it's only higher on an infant in the first couple months of life than an older child. Um, vital signs are hard. The infant may be um, crying, for example, and then you know blood pressure can be uh, sometimes inaccurate. I think vital signs are important. They are, as of now, not part of the prediction models we use, again, because they're hard to standardize. However, I think that we should pay attention to them. Um, some of the work we're trying to do is to associate whether uh, abnormal vital signs, for example, tachycardia being an important one, tachypnea, uh, fast breathing, whether that uh, predicts a serious bacterial infection or not. And so that's some of the work that's ongoing. don't have any answers for it. But I do think that we should try to uh, 
document vital signs. And if they're abnormal, for example, the blood pressure is high or low, um, or especially the heart rate is high, which is a more common finding, we need to reevaluate that and reassess it. And if we can't normalize that vital sign, that to me, while not part of a, of a prediction model, would make me want to evaluate that further. Okay. Uh, I did want to reference uh, a, a um, excellent resource, uh, the Penn Playbook, and, and they describe appearance. They uh, give a mnemonic, which some people really like, yeah. uh, and they call it tickles, um, which <laughs> okay. works for pediatrics. So tone, um, you know, is the tone normal for age? Is the newborn flexed? Is the six-month-old sitting up? Is the toddler cruising? Interactiveness, um, does the two-month-old have that social smile? Is the toddler looking around the room? Consolability, which I think is really important in this case, is the child uh, someone that the parent can hold and console? I think that when you mentioned vital signs, it might be a reasonable thing if we can't get a blood pressure in a certain age group with stranger anxiety and other things, whereas in other age groups, if we can easily get the blood pressure, mm -hmm. it might be concerning. Uh, so that's tone, interactiveness, consolability, look gaze, does the child look at the parent, look at you, um, and then speech cry, is the baby crying normally or is the parent describing this as a different cry? So tone, interactiveness, consolability, look gaze, speech cry. All right, great. Yeah, that's helpful. And so the, the infant that we're looking at is a full-term infant, is that correct? You're right. So, um, for example, in the Rochester criteria, uh, being a preterm, which they define as less than 37 weeks gestational age, uh, automatically makes them higher risk. So we in generally, I think, consider full-term a, a requirement to be considered low risk for an infection. Uh, we don't quite know the exact definition of that, but you're right. I think a preterm baby conceivably has a higher risk of infection, we believe. That hasn't been fully studied, but we believe that has a higher risk. So you're right. Full-term would have to qualify for low risk. And Paul, I've always struggled with when, when do they no longer uh, count mm -hmm. as preterm. So, you know, we have many friends and colleagues yeah. who are grown adults who are, who are, who are preterm. <laughs> so, you know, if you, were, if you um, look at how early they, uh, they were conceived and then look at, um, you know, the current age. So if we have a six-month-old that uh, was born at 30 weeks, um, should we still be considering that patient at high risk or is there a cut point mm -hmm. that you have? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think, um, um, you know, my knowledge of the literature is we don't have uh, hard evidence to guide us. Um, I think in the first two months, some people use, uh, in the first two months for the young infant, the corrected gestational age, so if someone was born at 35 weeks and now they're, for example, um, six weeks old, they will minus five weeks and say that infant is corrected one mm -hmm. week. And again, I think that's reasonable. Not all of us practice in that fashion, but that is, sense applying the principle that these infants are high risk and yeah, I'm going to take that. I think in the older child, for me at least, it's context dependent. So in a six-month-old with a fever who is premature, who has respiratory symptoms, we know those infants are, for example, higher risk of with bronchiolitis. And so I will put, take that into account. Um, in terms of as you get older beyond two months, you know, the risk of the most common infection that's you know, bacterial urotract infection. And I do not know personally of literature that documents that a 30-weeker, for example, versus mm -hmm. a 38-week baby who's now six months old has a high or lower risk. I think most of us probably apply that in the first two months. And beyond that, it's a little bit provider-dependent is my at least understanding of how the literature currently is. Great. And also, in no, so this uh, low-risk infant would have also no past medical history, no significant surgical history, perinatal period was fine and child did well. Um, and you, would you have any other remarks on that? Yeah, so um, it, it varies a little bit by the criteria, but in general, that is true. I think that the infant, um, you know, other important factors, in addition to what you mentioned, are um, 
whether they had a bacterial infection before, it sounds obvious, but whether in the perinatal period or since then, so only an infant who had a bacterial <coughs> infection once, we can think would be higher risk again. Um, you know, uh, those are the main factors, I believe. Um, uh, the Rochester criteria uses those a lot. Uh, those factors probably mostly apply to the first month of life where the infant in, uh, immune system is particularly um, uh, immature, but I think that an infant who's had, again, very premature, some sort of surgery, we treat those infants automatically high risk, at least many of us do. Paul, can, can you hit on some of the uh, work that you've done and others have done related to uh, maternal history, so whether that's herpes or GBS, mm -hmm. uh, because I think that would be the other group that I would put in here, that this baby right, right. was recently symbiotic with the mom and now is out on their own. So uh, what factors in terms of, you know, mom's uh, history would alert you to make someone a at high risk? Yeah, so uh, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting topic because a lot of the literature with maternal history, I'll, I'll stick with group B strep or GBS for the moment, um, is related to early onset sepsis, which is the first week of life, the first uh, when an infant um, you know, has bacteremia from group B strep, which often is, comes from a group B strep positive mom. We think those infants are automatically high risk. So those moms being group B strep positive, infant comes with a fever in the first week of life is high risk. Um, a mom who has chorioamnitis, for example, is high risk. It's a little bit unclear the farther you get out. So an infant who's, for example, six weeks of age, whose mom was group B strep positive, and most moms now, if they're group B strep positive, will receive perinatal antibiotics to reduce the risk of transmission. Um, I think that I personally, um, as they get older, don't automatically use that criteria. But again, with the principle of these infants are high risk, that does technically put them at a little bit of high risk. We don't know how much. We know it's high risk in the first week of life. After that, the data is a little bit unclear. And, and is that even if mom is treated appropriately uh, prof with prophylactic antibiotics or only if she's not? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a great point. So the, uh, only if, if, if she's not. If she is treated, the risk, uh, so meaning the treatment is penicillin or an equivalent four hours or more before the time of delivery of the baby. Um, during labor or during delivery, um, those, the risk goes down substantially with that. It does not make it zero. So I think to me, if the, pa if the baby is treated uh, fully, that makes the risk much lower, though not zero. Okay. Herpes is a different phenomenon. I won't spend too much. I'm happy to expand more. Um, uh, actually, m the highest risk of babies with herpes uh, infection, which is a terrible infection in the young infant, usually in the first three weeks of life or when it will present, um, it's, it's rare. The highest risk of, of a mom um, transmitting herpes simplex to the baby is actually a mom who acquires infection around the time of delivery. Moms who have a long-standing history of genital herpes, for example, often will be on Valitrex or have C-sections, and those infants will be at lower risk of an infection. So herpes is a challenge. Definitely a mom who has herpes lesions at the time of delivery, that infant is high risk and should be evaluated for herpes. That's an important infection that is rare but potentially devastating. Okay, so great. And as we go down the <coughs> criteria, we get down to uh, age. So I noticed mm -hmm. that the age is pretty young at 21 days. Um, has there been any consideration in moving that up to 28 days or how did you, how did they come up with 21 versus 28 or even other days? Yeah, so uh, this is an uh, interesting point of discussion in our field. So the, th the general uh, teaching is that the first month or first four weeks of life, so maybe 28 days, is a, definitely a higher risk. The, the rate of bacterial infection is higher compared to the second or third month of life. The rate of meningitis, which is the infection we most worry about, is definitely higher. And it's still not high compared to the older group, but it's higher. So most of the algorithms, for example, the Philadelphia criteria, Boston, which are two other criteria that are used, start at 29 days. 
step by step in the prior work that they did before publishing this paper, infants who were 22 to 28 days had a similar rate of these bacterial infections compared to the older 29 to 90 day infants. And that's why they used a cutoff of 21 days okay. to define high risk. However, what's interesting in their study is that um, their criteria worked pretty well in terms of identifying infants with invasive bacterial infection, i.e. blood or CSF infection. However, um, there were four infants aged 22 to 28 days who had a bacterial infection who would have been low risk. So actually in this study, the criteria did not work as well in 22 to 28 days. And right. so even though it's published at 21, currently some of us feel that perhaps the age cutoff at the moment should still be 28 days pending further study because the criteria in this study did not seem to work as well, the step-by-step -step approach in that 22 to 28 day age group. So that's how a lot of us have interpreted that, to be a little cautious in that first four weeks of life. Great. Yeah, that's very helpful. And, you know, so one thing I'm trying to do is come to <clears throat> see how we could apply this to the community hospital. So what I did is I went out and talked to some of the, you know, RD attendings and PAs and asked them, you know, do you know about this, the step-by-step -step approach, and how would you approach uh, a young infant with a fever that otherwise looks well? And it seems like, you know, they're still using the regular septic workup in those children and I think for us at this point is we, we could use something like this and then go ahead and talk to the PDED or other colleagues and say, hey, this is what, what's going on. This is what the history we took and the child looks good. And um, this is kind of our plan kind of going through this yeah. step by step. Yeah. So, so Tom, you're getting at uh, something that you know I'm very passionate about, which is knowledge translation and making sure to bring the current best practices uh, out to the community of practice. We know that for many things, this can take up to a decade. Um, so yeah. I think that podcasts like this will help us to do that in a more rapid fashion. I will say that, um, you know, one of the challenges in, in these circumstances is some of the medical legal aspects. And I know that there are large ED private practice groups that, you know, if you, mm -hmm. for instance, we're going to not comply with the Philadelphia criteria or, or another set of criteria and do a full sepsis workup in a child's that is less than two months of age with a fever, you actually have to call a doc on call to sort of explain your logic and, and, and talk yourself out of it. I think that, um, you know, the the challenge in the community, uh, I would say, is having a go-to strategy and I, I think being thoughtful about what ch children are safe to send home. Um, and Paul, I'm, I'm interested to hear from you. I know we've debated this sometimes. I mean, the easiest thing for any of us to do is do a full septic us work up on anyone that comes into our ED and admit him to the hospital. So, um, you know, when you're in this, this situation um, that you're either talking to a community emergency physician or talking to a parent, um, how do you frame this discussion and make that decision? Because I think less than 21 days, less than 28 days, I would say I don't struggle with that. I'm starting to have more of a struggle in the six-week-old that the community hospital is potentially calling me saying, we want to send the six-week-old down to you. They, um, you know, are someone that has a fever, we're going to do a full sepsis workup and send them down for admission. Um, so if I'm calling you from the community D and that's my discussion, would you, uh, you know, ask questions? Would you just have me go ahead and do it? What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, so I think you raise an important point, and something that I think sometimes uh, actually can get glossed over with these algorithms is that when an infant is identified as, as low risk based on whatever algorithm you use, step-by-step -step approach, um, and whether you not do a lumbar puncture, it's very, very, very much context-dependent in your practice environment. And I can't say that enough. So meaning that, um, for example, in the step-by-step -step approach in Europe, and they document this, they actually would observe some of these infants up to almost 24 hours in their kind of short stay in the emergency department. So a very okay. long period of observation, which we do not do here. Obviously, an RER would not be feasible yeah. in any ER, really. Um, uh, and similarly, in some um, uh, places, they, the ER has a very good connection with the primary care setting. And in the primary care world, actually, they do less testing than we do in the emergency department. And the reason is, is that while they certainly are aware of the algorithms, they know the family, they can follow up, they can make a phone call, they have a relationship. And that, to me, is the most important factor in determining some of these. Is For example, I gave a, a talk in, um, in a hospital in the, in the Bronx on this topic, and they point out they don't know the primary care physician almost ever with some of their patients, and it's very hard then to send that patient home, and I agree with that. So I think, to mm -hmm. me, if I'm getting that call, I think one is, are you comfortable with how the infant looks, and are you comfortable in assessing that, to Mark's point earlier, in that if you are not sure if the infant's well or ill, you should send them to me or get a second opinion or, or do more, investigate further. And secondly, if follow-up is unclear, or um, there, that is a critical point. So, and a lot of these criteria, they're, they requirement to be low risk is that the baby has follow-up in 24 hours, lives close enough to the hospital if something changes and gets worse. And I think you need to know where that baby is going to be able to send them home. And that's something that to me is that if you don't have that, if you don't know where they're going to go, if they have follow-up, then um, you should send them. And those are the types of questions that I ask. Great. Well, <clears throat> on that same topic, what if we use telemedicine for this type, this patient population? Because I was thinking about that the other day. This patient actually in this age group, it might be very helpful uh, because you'd be able to see uh, the child, how they look, their color. You could observe tone. And we'd, we're doing telemedicine now for mm -hmm. stroke, and we're doing a full neuro exam with stroke. So what do you think about telemedicine for this age group? So it's I'm actually going to defer this question to Mark since he's uh, an expert with some of this type of, uh, of work. I'll just say that it's an interesting question. Actually, it sounds like an interesting research question, actually, because I will say, um, and to a lot of the works Mark's doing in, um, you know, in sort of uh, you know, non-pediatric emergency departments, that there's so far most of the literature, not all of it, but most of it is based in pediatric emergency departments. And we don't have a lot of data on, on management of infants or comfort, comfort with managing infants in non-pediatric uh, emergency departments. And this is actually an interesting provide. I've not thought of telemedicine in this environment. It makes um, sense. There's, I think it goes to the challenge of assessing well-appearance in person and um, can you assess that sort of through a telemedicine environment. It's an intriguing question that I think may have some utility. I'm curious with Mark given his expertise in this Yeah, uh, area. so we're fortunate to have a, a nice study done by uh, one of our fellows who's now a faculty member, Lawrence Sue, uh, <laughs> that explored the uh, ability to apply the Yale observation score in the older infant. Right. Um, and I would say that telemedicine medicine from a support standpoint in terms of clinical decision-making, um, absolutely a great idea and, and lots of opportunities for discussion, whether it's on the phone or using video. Um, I would say in terms of evaluating the patient, um, you know, the telemedicine does have a potential. And in the work by Dr. Sue that was published in Pediatrics, uh, he was able to show that the remote provider can evaluate the Yale observation score as well as a respiratory distress score in a pretty simple similar fashion from a remote environment as well as 
being at the bedside. Uh, I would say that one of the challenges that I would bring up here is a lot of this is about interacting with the family and mm -hmm. what your discussions are with the family. So uh, probably going to depend upon the family's acceptance of technology and, and uh, you know where they are with that. If they're comfortable with having a discussion with the pediatric content expert and going home and following up with their pediatrician because that has given them some reassurance and if the provider is comfortable with that, I think it would be a great way to avoid uh, what can be a very um, expensive and uh, traumatic experience in going in an ambulance, having to be transferred to another hospital. Here in Connecticut, that's a pretty short trip, but in other parts of the country, that could be quite a long trip. And, and telemedicine for follow-up, to me, may actually be really um, a more uh, applicable and uh, you know practice-changing approach where we're actually having uh, repeated follow-up evaluations in the pediatric research and outpatient setting study where they looked at general pediatrician ability to screen based on their own gestalt. They, um, you know, had embedded in that article that they were talking to these families, I think it was on average about three times in the first day. Wow. So something like telemedicine yeah. where the pediatrician can say, hey, pop open your iPhone and, you know, let me take a look at the kid. Let me talk this through with you. Um, from my mindset would provide a, a lot of reassurance if that family says, well, I can't get into the pediatrician or I might not have resources like somewhere in the Bronx. Um, but I, I think a great idea, and I would say if there's anyone out there listening that's looking for a study, this would be a great study. Okay. Yeah, great. All right, procalcitonin. Can mm -hmm. we talk about that a little bit and sure. why they used it and um, the values and the challenges with that? Yeah, so procalcitonin um, is, uh, I would say, widely used in, in Europe in particular and in a lot of settings really to predict uh, bacterial infection for sepsis. In a young infant, it's been used in various studies over a number of years, um, with the thought being that it's a more accurate um, uh, marker of, uh, of bacterial infection in a child compared to, say, white blood cell count, which we know alone white blood cell count is not a good predictor of infection in either direction. Kids, uh, infants can have normal white blood cell and have a, uh, an infection and, and vice versa. Uh, so procalcitonin has not, uh, it's used at some sites in the U.S. Um, the biggest issue is two things. One is um, uh, availability, a timely availability in, <laughs> in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and also just kind of, I would say, inertia in clinicians and why it hasn't been adopted here. Um, for, for example, at Yale, I can't speak to how fast. I would say in a matter of a few hours it comes back, which may or may not be in a relevant time frame for an infant in the ER. But I think so procalcitonin is part of the algorithm. It's, uh, there's been more and more studies on it. Actually, uh, PCARN, our Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, our major research network in, um, in pediatric emergency medicine, they are coming out soon with an, an, their own algorithm, which actually incorporates procalcitonin as well. So it seems to be where we're going. Um, the value that's used in the step-by-step -step approach is the value of 0.5. Meaning that if you are, if the infant had a level above 0.5, they were at automatically considered at high risk for infection. Where if it was below 0.5, with other um, uh, uh, lab factors and appearance and, and whatnot, that it, they were low risk. Um, other studies have used values of 0.3. 0.12, and the problem with it is depending on what cutoff you use, you have different test characteristics. 0.5 is the most commonly used one. My quick take is that I think procalcitonin is where we're going, but it needs to be used in the context of other factors. It alone, as a standalone test, is the predictive accuracy of it is not uh, uh, enough to be used alone, but I think in using a step-by-step -step approach, for example, it performs better when used with a couple other markers. 
I, okay. I, want to, I wanted to just talk a little bit about why we do lab tests on these kids and what we're trying to do with that information. And, Perfect. you know, um, I, I think based on what Paul was mentioning before, we're concerned that there is some type of invasive infection or serious bacterial infection that could be in a one of a number of different locations. Um, so procalcitonin and other tests serve as biomarkers to let us know about how much inflammation is happening in the body and particularly if that inflammation that we expect to see with a bacterial versus a viral versus another etiology of infection. Paul, I was wondering if you could comment on, um, you know, seeing into the future here um, where uh, we might be 10 years from now looking at some of the biosignature and other work that's being done. This is really exciting and cutting edge stuff. And my hope would be that uh, I can have someone come into the office uh, or emergency department in this case and have a point of care test just like I do for glucose and say viral versus bacterial infection. Do you think we'll get there? Yeah, so um, I will say people have a lot of mixed opinions on this, um, depending on who you ask, um, for sure. Um, so uh, P. Karn, again, um, who's uh, also doing some work in this area, they published a study in JAMA um, last year, um, late last year, uh, looking at this RNA biosignature. So essentially what they do is you take, and I was when I was a fellow, our site was enrolling for this study. Um, and so an infant two months of age or less with a fever who was not clinically septic, uh, so generally well, you would send about, I think, a half to one ml of blood. I can't remember exactly how much. And what they would do, and this is not something that's readily available at this point, this is in okay. the research setting, that they run um, what's called an RNA biosignature, which looks at the gene expression of the white blood cell. Um, so meaning that if the, if the infant has influenza, the, the genes of the white blood cell will act one mm -hmm. way and produce a, a biosignature that looks like influenza. And it may show up as one color on this, on this biosignature. If it's an E. coli, so a common cause of bacterial infection in young infant, the genes will express differently and it will show up as a different color. And the idea of these is that as opposed to trying to predict, in, well, so the biggest issue is more pronounced, we, we are waiting for the bacterial cultures to grow, which can take up to 24 or longer hours. And so we have to base our prediction of infection based on these initially readily available tests, such as white blood cell count. The idea of this is that this will much more accurately, so you know, very few false negatives, meaning that it will light up appropriately for a bacterial versus a viral infection, in, hopefully in the future, in, like, in, a, in a more immediate uh, fashion. Um, and and the, in their initial studies seem to imply that these are pretty good, but they're not perfect. Uh, right. And part of that has to do with what bacteria you're assessing, what virus the infant had. There's so many different variables that go into it. They believe um, that someday this will be the future, where you've taken a, an one ml of blood, you don't need to do a lumbar puncture, you, or at least initially, you don't need to do this other test, and you can just run this on this biosignature and say, ah, it's, it's influenza, it's RSV, or it's mm -hmm. E. coli, and we have that readily available. Um, I think I think this is exciting. I think clearly a lot more work needs to be done. More infants, um, they are doing ongoing studies on this. What's the cost? What's the turnaround time compared to? And I think ultimately, my belief is that we may, I'm not sure we're ever going to have a perfect test. Right. We rarely do in medicine if we yeah. ever do. Um, and so I think we will always be stuck with some sort of gray area. But I think the goal of this, of this research is to push it that we are getting better and better to maybe not miss infections, number one, but also to mm -hmm. spare more and more infants the, tr the trauma, so to speak, of undergoing a lumbar puncture and, and you know, blood testing and hospitalization, which, while reasonably safe, is traumatic, understandably, for families. Um, there are risks to it. Uh, so I think we are heading in the direction we'll, we'll be better at this. I'm not convinced that we're ever going to be perfect because I don't think that will exist and we're always going to be stuck with a gray area. But the biosignatures will be an interesting thing to keep an eye on, whether the cost, the turnaround time, the predictive value of it justifies uh, its use in the future.
Well, can you speak to the sensitivity right now of where we are now? Because I thought the, the numbers were actually amazing where we are. I mean, you, did, you guys looked at over 2,000 patients, and the, the numbers to me were staggering. Yeah, so, um, so it's interesting. So, um, the, so much of the, infe- of the literature so far is based on again, not missing an infection. So as you said, being highly sensitive. So of infants who have an infection, how many do we detect? And I think there's a, a little bit of a, a misunderstanding with the prior algorithms that they were perfect mm-hmm. and that because we all apply them. The answer is they're not perfect, right. um, especially for invasive bacterial infections. The ones we really worry about, bacteremia and meningitis, the problem is they're relatively uncommon infections. Of all febrile infants who have come to the emergency department, only 1% to 2% will have one of those infections. Um, and on the flip side, they're very dangerous infections potentially. And so this study had a, a large number, 87 of those, which is a pretty large number for a study. Um, the sensitivity of the step-by-step approach for identifying infants with those infections was 92%, which is high. It's not 100%. Mm-hmm. Seven of the 87 would have been classified as low risk and potentially Paul, missed. Paul, can you, can you put that in layman's terms for me? So yeah. I'm a parent. I have a couple kids at home. Ooh. So let's say I'm coming in with <laughs> my two-week-old, or I'm sorry, 28-day-old, 30-day-old, and <laughs> And I'm classified as low risk. Can you just put that in, ter- in terms of, you know, our audience and, and, and uh, yeah. p- simple people like me can understand? Yeah, so you raise a good point. I, I, I won't um, editorialize in terms of some of the research I hope to do in this area. Um, I think that, so the risk is, say, 0.7%. And I'm, the reason I say that is that risk may be low to some people or may actually be high to some people, meaning as a parent. Parents may say, um, so to me, it's, it's a low risk, but it's not zero. And I think, believe that right now, a lot of the way we communicate that risk is kind of based on our what we plan to do after that. So if I'm someone who says 0.7 is low risk, I will tell a parent it's very low risk you have invasive mm-hmm. bacterial infection, yeah. and so I think you can go home with follow-up, et cetera. Someone else might view that as too high a risk, that 0.7% is not zero. And I actually think to me that um, as a parent, um, what I would ask, have them ask is, um, you know, what's the best way that they would contextualize that? So tell me the risk, but what, what do they value most? So 0.7% means the risk is low but not zero. The risk of sending a child home is there's a very low risk that child has an infection, we need to come back, potentially a low risk of an adverse outcome. The risk of doing a lumbar puncture and hospitalization, mm-hmm. there's risk to that too. And so I think in that, that we should actually communicate to families, what do they value? What's important to them? Is it being home um, in their own bed, um, recognizing that the risk is not zero? Is it um, you know, not um, doing a painful procedure on their infant. So I, I think that the risk is very low, but it's not zero. And I, will, I think actually we need to do more research on how to communicate that to families. So I'm not sure. Right now, um, we don't um, necessarily know how the parents interpret that risk, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So one thing we didn't talk about yet was urine. Mm-hmm. And I kind of left that for later in discussion purposefully because in the clinical world, if we're going to uh, evaluate this patient, we're going to order all these things up straight up, and the last thing to come back is urine for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and one is just obtaining the urine, and two is, so how do we interpret the urine and which test should we use? Should we do a urine dip, a urinalysis re- with reflex? Can you go over that? Uh, yeah, and, and Paul, can you also comment on some of the recent work from CHOP about uh, making that less invasive uh, as well? Uh, yeah, so um, I'll, I'll come back. That's an important uh, in question. So um, by far, of feb- infants with fever in the first two to three months of life, the most common infection is a urinary tract infection. Maybe 8% will have it. Um, generally, if that urinary tract 
tract infection is not associated with blood or spinal fluid infection, um, those infants are at lower risk of an adverse outcome. We still often admit them. We usually admit them to the hospital, which is a, another conversation. But urinary tract infection is the most common one. Um, you definitely, I think, in this age group, the standard is still to do a catheterization um, uh, for the urine uh, to get an accurate uh, culture. Um, traditionally, it was um, thought uh, for many years that the urinalysis, be it a urine dipstick or a with my a urinalysis with microscopy was not a very sensitive test in this age group, meaning that infants with a urinary tract infection would be missed. The reason is that they they pee a lot, they go to you know pee, yep. have a wet diaper every two to three hours, and so they may not have time to build up uh, inflammation in their bladder. That has been a little bit um, called into question in recent literature, and the thought now is that a urine dipstick um, plus a urine microscopy is pretty highly sensitive in that age group. So the, the, a positivity would be a leucosterase in the urine dipstick, a nitrite, or greater than five white blood cells in urine microscopy. The, I think most of us would say to do all three. Urine dipstick alone is will identify most, but we, mm -hmm. it's a little bit user dependent and may not identify all, though it seems to be pretty good. So most of us would use all three together. Um, there's something called an enhanced urinalysis. We don't have it at Yale. Certain sites like CHOP and Pittsburgh have it. That's a, a, actually a better urinary, uh, a better at detecting urinary tract infection in this age group. That's a different methodology of doing the urinalysis that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. We don't have it here, so I won't spend more time on that. To Mark's point, uh, what CHOP has done, not in the first two months of life, but children, uh, I believe, starting at two or three months of age and, and, and young children. So in the young child, especially young females up to age two and uncircumcised males as well, um, they're still who, who have a fever without a source. So they don't have a clearly have a, um, a lot of runny nose or an ear infection. Um, a, a percentage up to four or five percent, depending on the context of young girls and uncircumcised males up to a year or two years will have a urinary tract infection. And there are many kids that age. I have my own kids between age one and two. They both had a lot, a lot of fevers. It would have been a lot of urine casts to go through to diagnose it. So what CHOP has done is they've done a urine bag. When uh, so you put a clean bag on the on the on the young child and not the first two months of life and mm -hmm. uh, on arrival to the ER. And the benefit of that is you can do a urinalysis off that bag. If it's negative, it's normal, that child has a very, very low risk of having an infection and you can maybe not do a urinary catheterization. If it's positive, which will happen in a small percentage, then you should go on to do the cath. But the, the idea is that it's, it reduces the amount of invasive testing uh, in those young children. Because catheterization, while safe, is a painful procedure. It's stressful for parents. I, my own daughter went through it. I can relate to that. Um, and this is a way to sort of reduce that. But they did not do it in the first two months. And, of life. and I would say that for the community practitioners out there, um, you know, one of the challenges with that approach is that if you don't do it at triage and do it in a sterile and appropriate way, you're going to end up getting a quite protracted length of stay. Yes. Um, so I will say in my practice, I, I typically still go with the catheter and, and don't uh, put the bag on unless the parent have a, a strong objection to doing the catheter. But uh, it's certainly a nice idea if you can get it going uh, at triage and early on, but it does require um, fairly effective cleaning and also communicating to the parent that if that is positive, you are going to have to do the catheter. Yeah. Oh, that's helpful. And how about C-reactive protein? Uh, so um, that's also part of the step-by-step -step approach. And it's interesting. So uh, I will say that you asked before about procalcitonin. The one okay. potential downside of procalcitonin, which CRP is maybe in the same uh, context, is that if an infant has a fever for a very short period of time, maybe only develop the fever at the ER, so in a matter of 
an hour or less than six hours. Procalcitonin and potentially C-reactive protein take a few hours to build up a certain level. So if there's inflammation ongoing from an infection, they both take a few hours to reach a peak level. Pro, uh, CRP, I believe, is somewhere in the uh, four to six maybe peak and procalcitonin similar. So I think that um, C-reactive protein has not been part of any febrile infant algorithm until this one hmm. and then the lab score prior. Um, okay. Uh, it's used somewhat in sort of assessing for bone and joint infections in older children. Um, I think it's, if you're going to use a step-by-step -step approach, it is a part of it. It's essentially that plus procalcitonin plus the absolute neutrophil count replace the white blood cell count. Um, I think that the, I think it's, the algorithm is good, and I think if you're going to use, you should use both CRP and procalcitonin together. But there's some thought that a few of the infections that were missed were infants who had very, very short durations of mm -hmm. fever maybe on, only on arrival within a matter of hours. And I think those people argue that, uh, their argument is that for those infants, um, that the test may not be as accurate. Um, the question, what do you do with that information? Because we do face that sometimes. And white blood cell count also may not be accurate. But just the more that you just have to be a little careful, maybe arrange close follow-up for those infants with very short durations, because C-reactive protein and procalcitonin may not have had enough time to reach an appropriate level to be detected. So, so getting at that duration of fever, I know that one of the things that I commonly get called about from some of our community partners and have had discussions about and, and dilemmas about in my own practice is not just the short duration of a fever, but the fever is gone at triage mm -hmm. and the parent didn't give any antipyretic. So, uh, uh, Paul, can you just tell us your thoughts on that? So, um, you know, the, the, the prototypical patient that the parent is coming in saying, I used a rectal thermometer uh, that I bought at the store and the temperature was uh, you know, 102. I'm now at triage. They didn't give any medicine. And, you know, sometimes they feel like we're amazing because we fixed the baby <laughs> and now they should be able to go home. But what, what do you do with that child? Yeah, so um, in China, to be as uh, scientific as possible, looking at the literature, most of the studies have, um, for infants who had a fever who were included in the febrile infant studies, such as the step-by-step -step approach study, the requirement was either a fever of 100.4, um, either rectally, either at home, within 24 hours or in the ER, and so both together. And so we don't know um, the, the risk difference between an infant who is febrile in front of you versus was had a true rectal temperature at home. Um, the, currently, the literature that the limits out there implies that that infant is still at risk of an infection. So a true rectal temperature at home before to the ER, even if afebrile, you should treat yeah. the same. So, right? so let's make it a little harder here because I think the more realistic thing in nowadays yeah. is the ear or yep. temporal, temporal artery thermometer or one of those little uh, you know pieces of Strip. paper that you put on, on the ch infant's mouth. So <laughs> in that situation, uh, what would what would you do? So, if yeah, I was afraid you were going to ask me this because <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely uh, a challenge. So um, in, again, most of the research studies, those infants either aren't included or they're small numbers because from a research study, you want to standardize the approach and those are infants. So um, there's no, um, I would say there's no standard practice. I would say to me, um, I think you have a couple approach. I think as long as you are, are approaching the infant with the, again, the principle that this infant is at high risk of infection, period, um, I think that um, you should have a lower threshold than an older child to pursue looking for infection. My own practice, personally, again, not necessarily evidence-based, but is in the first month of life, I am much more apt to treat that infant as if they had a real infection, i.e., blood, urine, probably a lumbar puncture admission. And the second month of life, an infant who, say, had an ear thermometer temperature and now is afebrile, 
I think it's justifiable to do some evaluation for infection. I've also taken the approach, again, thinking like a primary care pediatrician, if they have follow-up, I will watch the child in the ER for a little period of time, a few hours, check the temperature multiple times, assess their feeding, the things you brought up before, Tom. And if they have reliable follow-up, there are infants I have not done a workup mm-hmm. in, in the second month of life. But the, the, the context really matters. If I have reliable follow-up, the pediatrician's on board, the family understands the risks, then I think that that is a reasonable approach. But again, I think if you doing more while there are risks to that, uh, I think, um, you know, certainly in the first month of life, I think most of us would still treat that infant the same just because the risks are higher. And, and Tom, out in the community, uh, would you say that it is standard in the emergency department to be uh, using rectal temperatures, or do you still hear from some of your colleagues that they're uh, using uh, other techniques? Because I, it is, a, a, a you know, being at triage, yeah. it is a kind of a weird experience to say to the parent and, and perceived as pretty invasive. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, we use both. I think for the, this infant, uh, we would really recommend a rectal temperature, and hopefully we're getting that. Um, so I think it, it depends. I think it depends on the community hospital and how much attention there is to the, the infant. But I think for the most part, I think we're getting rectal temperatures, especially in this age group. As the child gets older, I think we're going more to other means. Sure. So... One other question I had is uh, one criticism they have of the uh, of the study itself is this. Some folks say this is not outcome based. Mm. So can we talk about that? And is are they looking to do more outcome based studies or? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So you raise a, a, another important point from this, and it's something that um, in re- you know reviewing the study and some of the related studies, um, it was actually. Um, uh, sort of eye-opening to me. So what we worry about, I think there's two issues. So one is if you send an infant home um, who say is low risk by whatever criteria you use, including step-by-step approach, the infant's risk of an invasive bacterial infection is not zero. It's low. Right. To Mark's point before, how you communicate that is really important. Um, what, we, what we know is that, say, 0.7% will have an infection. Um, or if you use the right test criteria, a, a certain percentage right. will have in one. What we don't know is what actually happens to those infants mm-hmm. if you delay diagnosis. So the pediatric research and outpatient studies, uh, outpatient setting study from 2004 in JAMA, which is a primary care ne- network, um, in their study, this was primary care managed infants. They had 63 infants who had vacuumier meningitis, um, and these were in primary care settings. Two of them um, came to the primary care office were sent home and with 24 hours later were diagnosed with meningitis and the other one with bacteremia. So we were missed. Okay. Um, and um, both both those infants did very, very well, um, but they had close follow-up. In the ER setting, there's extremely limited outcome data because in a lot of the studies, the infants who had infections we admitted anyway to the hospital, um, and that's the challenge. In this study, they sent seven of those, in, uh, seven of those infants who were low risk Four were admitted to the hospital anyway. Uh, actually, five were. So you couldn't assess yeah. their outcomes. They were admitted anyway. The other two became afebrile home and did well. So two out of the seven who were were missed did fine. Very, very, very small uh, mm-hmm. numbers. And a lot of the extrapolation of, for example, meningitis, what we worry about the most, has to do with in the past, it, uh, children who had meningitis who didn't clear their uh, cerebral spinal fluid antibiotics, then what happened to them? But we don't know at what point an infant becomes high risk of having a bad outcome. So this study, that they did a follow-up study that they published um, of assessing all the infants that they sent home and um, who were low risk. And essentially, no one had a bad outcome. But very, very few, just those two, had a bacterial infection. And so we don't really know. And so what we really need is really large sort of studies of across hospitals of infants who had bacterial infections who were sent home from the ER 
who then return and to assess. That's part of the work we're trying to do with our my, my own research group. But even so, we're going to be limited to maybe a dozen, a, a few dozen of these infants. So I think we, but what studies have to report is um, all those infants who were missed and what happened to them before we can really say, which is very hard to communicate to a parent because I cannot definitively say the risk, the risk is probably low that infant has a bad outcome if you miss one, but we don't know it at this time. And, okay. and, and in the litigious society we live in in mm -hmm. the U.S., it's a little bit different than this European study where, uh, you know, there is shared decision-making, as Paul mentioned, that's together with the provider and the practitioner. And, you know, Paul and I have discussed this in the past. I think that some of us would say seven in a thousand is high, and we might give mm -hmm. a sales pitch of we want to do this because we don't want to have to, you know, worry that this patient's going to, A, have a bad outcome, and B, that we're going to get that terrible call of, hey, Tom, remember that kid yeah. you sent mm -hmm. home the other day. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's important. Paul, can you just go over uh, the step-by-step -step approach and how it should be applied and um, any other pitfalls you think folks should be careful about using it and just kind of review what we've talked about? Yeah, so, so to review the step-by-step -step approach, the algorithm, how it works, is this is meant for infants who are 90 days of age or less, um, uh, who have a fever of, again, retrol temperature of 100.4 or some temperature of 100.4, um, to Mark's question before. So the way you apply this algorithm, this is called the step-by-step -step approach, is you apply sequentially these different factors. In real life, most of us would apply them probably together because in the ER mm -hmm. setting, um, certainly you sort of can't wait a few hours uh, before setting another test. So the way it works is the first thing you assess is their clinical appearance. If they are ill-appearing, they become high risk and you do everything. If they're not ill and everything I mean you do lumbar pump, blood, urine, et cetera, admit them on antibiotics. If they're not, if they're well-appearing, you then um, assess their age. If they are 21 days or below, again, they automatically become high risk. If they're above 21 days, then you check their urine. If their urine is normal, then you go on to the blood testing. And the three components are procalcitonin, uh, C-reactive protein and absolute neutrophil count, um, and I'm happy to review the values, but um, the, if those are normal, um, then the infant is uh, classified as low risk for an infection or low risk for an invasive bacterial infection, and at which point the risk is, again, not zero but less than 1%. And so the way you would apply that is ideally you'd have these tests back I think um, within four hours is probably a reasonable time frame in the emergency department. If they become high risk, the usual standard approach is to assess for meningitis with lumbar puncture and admit on antibiotics. I think most providers would do that. But if yeah. they're low risk, the option would be if you can arrange follow-up in 24 hours, the family's reliable, you've observed that child over time, is to potentially send them home without antibiotics uh, to be closely observed and follow-up within 24 hours. And that's how I'd apply it. But it's contingent on family, follow-up, and availability of procalcitonin. Great. And, and uh, you know, we talked about 21 or 28 days. In terms of the upper limit, what age group yeah. would, would you stop using this? And, and how do the um, vaccine status of your patients mm. uh, get in there? Because I think that yeah. we more and more are seeing parents who are refusing vaccines. Um, you know, my typical approach was once they've had their two-month shots, I, I might be a little bit less concerned. Now I struggle with the nine-month-old uh, that has not had their two-month shots. Yeah. Um, so I will say actually an important point, and I'm sorry I didn't clarify this before, but in terms of the age cutoff, so they use 21 days. I think based on this study, the fact that there were four infants up to 28 days, uh, I would actually, to me, apply this um, above 28 Agreed. days of age. Yeah. For yeah. Me. So I agree. So I probably didn't clarify that before. I think that while they, I think they also have a different practice environment in, mm -hmm. in, this, uh, in this set of emergency departments, but I think 28 days and below 
uh, most of us would consider high risk pending further study on this. Um, so that's an important point. I would not apply this to the first four weeks. Vaccine status is interesting in this age group because the vast majority of infants, um, you can start getting you know, your two-month vaccines at six weeks. The vast majority will not have had vaccines, period, because they won't be old enough. Um, and I know of only scant literature on this. Actually, a former uh, co-fellow uh, of mine, uh, Meg Wolf, who's now at Michigan, did a study in her residency um, at Boston Children's where they looked at uh, Im immunizations um, in general in children and, and predicting um, sort of, an, uh, you know, can the immunization causing a fever um, uh, then make you feel reassured that the fever is due to the, to the vaccine. But she didn't actually assess sort of vaccines period and outcomes. So the study was very well done, interesting that essentially, you know, there's still a risk of urinary tract infection and can yeah. you got a recent vaccine. I would say due to her herd immunity, um, for example, Streptococcus, um, the, the rate of Streptococcus in the first two months of life has gone down. It's still low. I personally do not use vaccines in this age group just because um, a lot of the vaccine-covered pathogens are not the primary ones. Things like E. coli, Staph aureus are the more common organisms we see. Um, but people brought this up, and to my knowledge, it has not been well studied in this age because there aren't enough numbers of infants who had or didn't have a vaccine. I agree in older kids. I think it's interesting. I'm curious what your practice is in older infants. Yeah, I, I feel bad because sometimes I feel like it's my own bias in almost um, you know, over-treating because the parents didn't get vaccinated, and I want to try to avoid that. Um, because that yeah. was their own decision. Um, I, I, you know, where I would stop applying the step-by-step -step approach, um, you know, or having a concern about fever, I, I think varies based on the context. Um, but in, in this case, certainly uh, 28 to two months of age uh, to 60 days, this seems to work really well. And I would say that um, my practice has been once they're two months, they do more. And I'm more comfortable with saying how their interactivity is and some of those tickles things that we mentioned before. And that that child, because they are more developmentally there, they're not just eat, sleep, pee, poop, cry, um, I can get a better handle and the parents can get a better handle on it. Um, so I would say that my practice would probably be Beyond two months, um, I would probably not take this approach. If they're not vaccinated, I might. I don't think that's evidence-based. How about you? What's your upper age? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, a lot of the studies vary on the upper age limit. So um, 90 days is used in this and some of the European studies. Uh, we did a study a few years ago that we collected the clinical practice guidelines in various pediatric emergency departments around the country to see what they do. And some emergency departments stopped at 56 or 60 days. And above that was a little bit provider dependent, but the point being that the risk was probably lower. Um, and so there was no standard guidelines. Some considered two and three months of age one to two months or two to three months of age the same. And so we do the same approach, like step-by-step, step, um, or at that time, Rochester in, or Philadelphia in both age groups. I agree. I, to me, at around somewhere around 60 days of age, will stop applying this just because I think that the infants two to three months are still at risk. The risk is probably lower. Most of it is still urine. So I think all of us would do a urine, yeah. a urine uh, analysis and culture and above that. The closer they are at 60 days um, with no source, like no, ur no upper respiratory symptoms, I will sometimes assess their blood. Um, but I rarely do a lumbar puncture unless the infant looks ill, unless uh, something is abnormal with the infant or, or the testing. But I agree. I think I, I do less after two months. So for me, for a lot of us, we don't necessarily apply this above two months of age to most of them. Uh, the vaccine point is an interesting point, uh, and I think that's a reasonable approach for sure. Great. Thank you both very much for coming today. This has been awesome. It's a very exciting work, uh, and I appreciate it. And 
you know, next time we'll cover maybe fevers in the older kids and kind of go from there. But thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thank you.